Hello and welcome to BIRD's information podcast series about fibromyalgia syndrome. My name is Mel Brook and I am BIRD's Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director. In this first episode, I talk with Dr Maddie Piper, who is a consultant rheumatologist with interest in inflammatory arthritis, connective tissue diseases and fibromyalgia. Maddie is interested in raising awareness of fibromyalgia and in promoting best practice based on current understanding of the condition. In this first podcast, we talk generally about fibromyalgia syndrome. Maddie walks us through our current understanding of it. We look at some of the background on things like who it can affect, onset, triggers and commonalities, and how it manifests and what kinds of symptoms and impacts it can cause. We also learn about how fibromyalgia is evaluated diagnosed and treated, and how self-management techniques such as pacing and planning can really help. In addition, woven into our conversation are snippets of discoveries and thoughts from new research projects that Maddie shares with us and will hopefully lead to a better understanding of fibromyalgia in future times. Welcome to Birds Information Podcast, Dr. Maddie Piper. Hello, Mel. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me to talk on the podcast. You're welcome. Um, we're, we're grateful to have you here. So for people listening in this podcast, we're going to talk about fibromyalgia syndrome or FMS, some people say for short, or just fibro. And you're going to walk us through the backgrounds and symptoms, and we're going to go all the way through to diagnosis and treatments. Right. Well, fibromyalgia, the main thing I think for people to understand and that most fibromyalgia patients know is how little has been known about fibromyalgia and how difficult it has been to give a clear answer as to what it is. That is getting better um, and I hope through the course of this podcast, we can talk a little bit about the incredible developments, really, that there have been over 20 years now and that are continuing. So the picture is improving. So what is fibromyalgia syndrome? Well, it's called a syndrome because it is a collection of symptoms which we see repeated um, amongst different patients So we can recognize it as a particular thing, a particular entity, but we don't know what causes it. So we can't give a more specific term to it. And fibromyalgia is just um, terms that have been derived from Latin and Greek saying painful fibers and muscles, basically. So it's a descriptive thing. Mm. So the collection of symptoms are dominated by chronic pain Um, and With that, virtually all patients have fatigue, which can be extremely profound, usually poor sleep or sleep which is unrefreshed, um, and a whole constellation of other symptoms as well, which, again, if you would like me to, I'll I'll go into Mm -hmm. further. We we certainly will. I mean, it sounds like it's a very difficult to live with and complex syndrome. It absolutely is, Mel, yes. And and that's why I think the fact that there is some clarity coming through and has been getting better is important for for people, really, so that they can begin to understand it and tackle it better than we have in the past. Absolutely. So let's talk about the symptoms and things like 
Is it a gradual development? Do they come on suddenly? All those kinds of things. For most patients, it's gradual. Uh, so I see patients sometimes who have had the symptoms really since childhood, certainly since the teens, and have suffered for many, many years before getting a final diagnosis. And the average time um, to diagnosis after getting symptoms is about five years. So most patients, it comes on very gradually. Occasionally, it comes on more rapidly. Um, and that seems to happen particularly for patients who have a, a trigger so if someone, for instance, has a major road traffic accident or a serious illness or some major life event or family stress, mm. possibly in almost, you know, our, our current thinking is something that disrupts sleep for, you know, a particular period of time, that can trigger a more rapid onset. Um, but for most people, it's a gradual onset. Right. So... With all the pain and all the other kind of symptoms that we've you've mentioned so far, are there other additional health risks that come with this? So any like any of the internal organs and things like that? Well, the good news for fibromyalgia is that although patients suffer a great deal, it does not actually cause damage to organs or joints. We now understand that it's a problem of um, pain processing so it's what we call a neurosensory disorder so there's there are things have gone wrong with the way the nerves and the brain are feeling pain but the joints and muscles and organs are not affected they're not damaged right. so that's very important because patients uh, it's a very broad syndrome and some people have irritable bowel some have pelvic pain some have trunk pain, back pain, and because of the, some people have um, pain affecting their jaw, headaches, and because of that, they can see a lot of different specialists over the course of the years mm. before they get diagnosed. And I would say actually one of the dangers, if, if anything, is over-investigation and even sometimes operations before the diagnosis is made because it is such a wide-ranging set of symptoms. Where the condition itself potentially causes harm is because of the impact it has on a patient's lifestyle. So mm. patients with chronic pain and fatigue find it very hard to maintain any kind of you know, significant exercise program. That can really be unrealistic when you're exhausted and in pain. Um, so, so that lack of mobility, that in turn can cause weight gain and deconditioning um, and a bit of a downward spiral in terms of being less and less able to, to do exercise. I would like to quickly say that smoking is an absolute no-no, of course, in environment, mm. partly because the, the immobility, obviously, with smoking increases all those risks for heart disease and stroke. But there's also evidence that smoking worsens the pain in fibromyalgia. So the, the first step would always be to stop smoking if that's a factor. Um, but of itself, the actual condition itself does not cause damage and, and that is a very important thing for patients to understand because having so much pain and so many symptoms can be very frightening and very worrying. Mm, absolutely sounds like it I mean you mentioned exercise there but it it sounds like it's the kind of condition that's going to affect so many other areas of your life you know your social life your ability to work it's really quite disabling isn't it in for some people. 
Absolutely. And I would say it's disabling for most in some way and for some people profoundly. Mm. Patients tend to have good days and bad days. And so trying to hold down a demanding job can be very, very difficult in that situation. Mm. Also, in terms of, you know, running a home, raising a family, enjoying your recreational activities, you know, sexual relationships, all of that can be affected by the, the chronic pain and the fatigue. And then, of course, when all of that is going on, you know, it's not at all surprising that people feel low in mood and start to feel depressed, especially if no one has given them a diagnosis and mm. they don't know what's going on. So it can absolutely have a massive impact on every aspect of a person's life. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it does sound, it sounds that way. And in the very simplistic terms, am I right in saying that it it's like the pain pathways between the site of pain and what happens in the brain are kind of disrupted? Is that is that what we think is going on? That's right. Though you know, as I think we'll talk a bit more, the the whole thing is in mm. in a bit of flux because there are so many new. Uh, discoveries and ideas coming through so what we mainly think it is is that it's from what's called central sensitization and what that means is if you if you like the volume has been turned up in the brain so all the sensors that are being fed into the brain are at high volume so people feel very sensitive to touch to pain to light to noise um and we think that is to do with the sensors going into the brain not being adequately damped down. So it's what we call the descending pathways from the brain that damp down that input, um, which has gone wrong. Mm. There is some interesting work that suggests it's it's more based in the spine, but the big step forward, we've had two big step forwards in the past 20 years. One were sleep studies, which showed that fibromyalgia patients do not sleep in the same way to um, the general population. So we found with sleep studies that um, deep sleep in fibromyalgia patients is repeatedly interrupted. It's disturbed by light sleep. And Mm -hmm. if that happens, if you don't have sufficient deep sleep, that is restorative sleep, that is refreshing sleep. And mm. that we, we did think was the main driver, that that disrupts the way the brain works, the way it interprets pain and it sensitizes the brain. <laughs> then came along the, the functional brain scans where we can see blood flow in the brain according to different activity that's going on in the brain. And that was fascinating because it showed that in fibromyalgia patients, the pain area in the brain is very active. So patients aren't intolerant of pain. They don't have a low pain threshold, but their brain is sensing pain when the rest of us would not feel that pain. And the areas to do with mood had low activity. That that was an explanation for the fact that the mood was low. So we now saw that actually two things were different in fibromyalgia patients. Sleep was abnormal and the way the brain was functioning was abnormal. The end product seems to be the sensitization of of all the sensors coming into the brain not being adequately damped down and controlled. That's so interesting. I think people listening to this, you know, especially if they've got fibromyalgia, it's confirming that 
there is something going on. So I think that's a, that's really interesting. Thanks, Maddie. Yeah, I, mean, well, I think that, that was what the big step forward because blood yeah. tests are normal. So patients are often told there's nothing wrong. But yeah. now with these new ways of looking at the way the body is functioning, not of just blood tests, we're beginning to see that actually things are abnormal, things are different, but they're not shown in blood tests. Yeah. I probably jumped ahead a bit with that question, but that, that is really interesting. And I know we'll come back to some of that. Um, just to go back to some of the kind of general background and what we know is who does it typically affect? Is it more common in males or females? What do we know a little bit more about the background? Again, this is shifting a little bit, but traditionally we've always said it affects females predominantly. So nine females to every one male um, in the fibromyalgia population um, and mostly in the middle years, so between 25 to 55. But it can affect children. It can affect the very elderly um, and it can affect men. And over the last 10 years or so, there's been a shift in how we've diagnosed fibromyalgia. So in the past, there was a concentration on the 18 tender points, which we felt, and depending on how many were tender, we said yes or no, it's fibromyalgia. But as we've discussed, there's, the syndrome involves a whole constellation of other symptoms, the tiredness, the irritable bladder, and um, irritable bowel, and all this kind of thing. So over time, there's been a questionnaire developed, which includes um, an element called the widespread pain index, which looks at how much pain there is and where it is, and a symptom severity score. And by using that way of looking at fibromyalgia, rather than just the tender points, we're actually picking up a lot more men than women. The, the male fibromyalgia patient typically doesn't seem to have so much in the way of tenderness, but more in the way of these general symptoms. And some studies have suggested it's down to two met two women to one man. So much less dominant female uh, preponderance than we thought, but that, that's still a little bit in flux. But, but it suggests that a lot of men remain undiagnosed. Mm. So it's a changing picture, isn't it, in terms of understanding this, this condition? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So you mentioned earlier on something about triggers. You said about, you know, there are known triggers, things like if people have been in accidents. Are there other things that we know about? Um, you know, is there any kind of biological factors or genetic predispositions? Yes. I mean, that, again, has been the other very interesting area that I think is, is going to help us um, target treatment in the future. So we have identified a range of genes which are associated with increased risk for fibromyalgia, and they are genes which tend to affect chemicals in the brain, particularly serotonin and dopamine, mm. both of which are linked to mood, um, as well as it seems the, the general fibromyalgia picture. Um, so we know that there is a genetic link. We do see clusters in families, and some studies have suggested that um, family members are eight times more likely to get fibromyalgia uh, if they have a family member with fibromyalgia. I always ask about um, family members and whether anybody else, particularly the female members in the family, have symptoms or have a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, and it's very common for patients to say that there is a family history. So we know there's a genetic uh, link. Understanding that more over time may allow us to understand different subsets of patients, that not all patients will respond to the same treatment in the same way. So. Mm -hmm. 
as with all conditions, actually, as we understand the genetics behind it, it may allow us to target treatment to the individual more as time goes on. We're not there yet, Mel, so you know, don't, people mustn't get too enthusiastic. But the fact that we are identifying genetic risk for fibromyalgia, again, gives a target that we can start to look at. Yeah, any research is good news. I think anything that makes more discovery and helps to find, like you said, more targeted, more appropriate treatments for the individual has got to be, you know, a good a good news sort of story. You mentioned about it being, you know, higher in females and you and something about the age. I mean, is there an obvious connection here that anybody's discovered with regards to hormones in women? No, uh, there isn't at the moment. Um, and of course, it makes you think about other conditions that predominantly females, all the autoimmune conditions, which are more female. Um, and as you know, there, there has in the past year or so been some research which has identified at least a subset of patients where, where there does seem to be an autoimmune element. Um, and that was found when the immunoglobulins from, pa from patients with fibromyalgia were injected into mice and the mice developed fibromyalgia symptoms, whereas immunoglobulins from um, the uh, non-fibromyalgia um, population, the, the mice did not develop uh, fibromyalgia. So there's a suggestion that then, at least in some patients, there may be an autoimmune background. That tends to be much more female. But beyond that, no, there hasn't been a real understanding of why there has always been a predominance of uh, female. It may be the different pain and, you know, sensation pathways and, and uh, sensitivities mm -hmm. between the genders, but I've not seen a good explanation as to why. And again, hormones we know are linked to the connective tissue diseases. And so patients tend to start developing things like lupus after the, um, after the, the menarche and as teenagers and, and uh, until the menopause. Um, but we haven't got that understanding of the link between hormones and fibromyalgia. Mm, we're hearing a lot more about women's health um, specifically these days. So it's obviously more research to be done that and, and more things to be discovered by the sounds of it. But it's, it's interesting. And the autoimmune link, you know, makes a lot of sense for a lot of people because you can get the primary and the secondary fibromyalgia, which I'm sure you'll come on to. So again, I don't want to sort of jump ahead. So well, I mean, We can discuss that. I mean, that's important I suppose in the sense we're talking about what is fibromyalgia and it's basically divided between primary and and secondary or what we're now calling comorbid fibromyalgia so patients can develop fibromyalgia on its own and that that is the condition they have and and that that's the the, the totality of uh, what they have but we see it complicating a lot of the conditions we see in our rheumatology clinics so um, for our rheumatoid arthritis patients about 20 percent will have fibromyalgia as well as their rheumatoid arthritis mm. and in our SLE patients about 30% will have fibromyalgia as well as their lupus so whether that's because they've got chronic pain and a chronic illness which has disrupted sleep and has uh, fed fibromyalgia or whether there is an autoimmune link we really don't know yet there are just some very interesting um, studies coming through and we'll have to watch this space really over the next few years. Mm. I think even though we don't have all the answers and we don't know everything that's causing it right now, I think it's good to hear that there is research being done and how these thoughts are beginning to be put together. So it, it's very interesting to have this feedback, Maddie. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
So mm. let's let's talk a little bit about how it's evaluated, how it's diagnosed. I mean, it sounds like it's kind of all over the place in terms of symptoms. So how, how does that happen in clinic? How do you get that diagnosis nailed? In a rheumatology clinic, we do see a lot of fibromyalgia. So I did a, a little snapshot um, study of our referrals, a clinic I was um, running in Wales, and we found that one in three of our new referrals were fibromyalgia patients. So we're seeing a, a lot of patients coming through the clinic. Um, and it is a syndrome, so it's a package of symptoms that you recognize after a while. So the history, what we call the history, which is asking the patient when everything started and what's been happening, what the symptoms are and how they feel, that actually is the most important part of diagnosing fibromyalgia. It's, it's listening to the patient. I once had a very wise um, teacher in, in medical school who said, listen to your patients, they're telling you the diagnosis. Mm. So um, just listening to that history will usually help you to start putting it together and saying, this sounds as though it's fibromyalgia. We then examine the patient in clinic. So we do still do the tender points because that can confirm, support your clinical suspicion that this is fibromyalgia. And then you do a thorough examination. That's partly to exclude other things. So for instance, you wouldn't expect to have swollen joints if someone had fibromyalgia. And also to check that there's nothing else to suggest anything else is going on. So you do the standard thorough examination um, of, you know, check the chest and the, the tummy and look at the joints and, and in general, just make sure that um, everything else is, is fine. Patients are often very stiff. So it's a clinical picture that you've, you see through the history, through the examination. Then I would do the widespread pain index and the symptom severity score, which gives you some numbers to, to suggest, yes, this, this looks like fibromyalgia. Yeah. Um, so it, it all comes together um, really clinically. And then we tend to send quite a wide range of blood tests um, to make sure that we're not missing anything else, that this is indeed fibromyalgia. And you'd expect all those blood tests to be negative. But because the symptoms are very general, you know, pain, tiredness, feeling generally down, there are other things. So for, you'd always want to check a thyroid function, for instance, you know, and there, there's a whole range of tests that we do to just make sure um, that we don't get a surprise, which we very rarely do, but very occasionally you do, that actually there's another cause for the symptoms. But the actual diagnosis of this looks like fibromyalgia is made on history and examination. Mm, so things like the blood tests are there to rule out anything else, really, and, and to confirm that there is nothing else that's causing these symptoms, so that that's part of the diagnosis. That's right. There's nothing that's different and that would be treated in a different way, That so you just check that. Um, before you commit completely to the diagnosis. So you don't do things like x-ray because you're not considering that those are useful or necessary? Yes, so you do do x-rays or ultrasound scans or any other um, imaging tests unless you are more concerned that there is something else going on. So if you had someone who came in and you thought, no, this is fibromyalgia, but maybe they had a chronic cough or they were a heavy smoker, you might think, you know what, I'll just do a chest x-ray. But, but that would be because you're just a little bit more concerned that maybe there's something else that you need to think about. But in this standard patient where there, there isn't a... a it's concern that might direct you towards wanting to look at something, then no, you would not do that. Mm. 
And then the other thing that people are probably familiar with is all the, the questionnaires for the quality of life, the questions that, that are assessing what you're able to do and what you're able not to do and how much the condition is um, affecting your life. Yes, we don't, as I'm, I mean, you may be aware, Mel, and I, you know, a lot of our patients probably are, we, we don't tend to do as much of those as maybe we could and should in clinic. Um, there is um, a fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, which is done on our self-management program uh, where they do that sort of at the beginning and then later on after there's been some intervention but in clinic itself uh, we don't do that perhaps as much as we could I think that's partly because we at the moment anyway we, we tend not to follow up patients in rheumatology clinic uh, we make the diagnosis we refer them on if they've got moderate to severe fibromyalgia we tend to refer them on to our um, physiotherapy and occupational therapy led uh, self-management program and we don't follow them in clinic so we wouldn't do for instance serial questionnaires of, of how they're they're coping which is really I think where those are most useful so in rheumatoid arthritis where we do see our patients over many years um, we would tend to do a questionnaire called the hack to see how, you know how people are coping and whether that's changing over time in fibromyalgia we tend to leave that more to the the self-management program uh, where they have a lot more time and a lot more detail and they do see the patients beginning end and certainly before COVID and I would suspect still but I, I'm not totally sure they, they follow up also at a few months beyond the the program to see how patients are doing. Right okay so when you've had the diagnosis I mean we, we keep calling it a syndrome a condition is it what's the classification of this is it a disease is it a condition? I would call it a syndrome right? because it's, it's a, a collection of symptoms, which is, that's what a syndrome is, a collection of symptoms which are reproducible. So you know, if 10 people come in with fibromyalgia, you know, one after the other, they will have very similar symptoms that cluster into this syndrome. Condition is just a very non-specific term for something not quite right. Disease, you normally apply to illnesses where you have a clearer picture really of the uh, cause um, and because of that maybe a you know clearer picture of what the treatments are for that so disease I think is more sp for a specific condition with with greater understanding of its biology um, whereas a syndrome is where you still do not have a good understanding of its biology but you recognize that this cluster of symptoms keeps coming together in different patients and it is a, a real entity but you haven't identified exactly what it is. Hmm. in terms of its biology. Okay. Hi again. This is a great moment to pop the kettle on and have a quick stretch. And while you're doing it, we'd be really grateful if you would consider donating £5 to Bird to help support our programme and these information podcasts. All you'd need to do is text BIRD to 70460. This will cost £5 plus your standard rate message. Thank you. So bouncing back to what happens after diagnosis, can we talk a little bit more again about what happens there and if there are any medications that are able to be prescribed for people with fibro after diagnosis I, I think 
medications will come to Mel because really with fibromyalgia, um, the medication history has been complicated. And if we're moving away from thinking of medication as the answer for fibromyalgia. Right. So once the diagnosis is made, there's evidence and, and certainly I feel that that first consultation when the diagnosis is given to the patient is an important part of the therapy. Um, that is the time that the patient can ask questions and you can explain what this condition is about. And as I said earlier, these patients have often had a very long journey before they get to that diagnosis. Mm. Um, they've often had a lot of frustration where, you know, the reality of their condition has sometimes been questioned, where they themselves have thought, perhaps I'm just going mad. And people are so relieved sometimes by that clear diagnosis i often have patients crying in clinic because out of relief mm. that finally they know what they're dealing with finally someone has told them what's going on so i think that first consultation is very important in itself in mm. terms of um, the patient coming to terms with things starting the education process about what this condition is and starting to talk about the limits of treatment, but also how life can improve considerably by managing it proactively. So I think that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The next thing is that, again, as I said earlier, for moderate to severe, severely affected patients, um, we normally refer to our self-management program. And that's a program that is based on education and on a gradual tailored exercise, which the uh, most recent guidelines have shown has the strongest evidence base for improving symptoms. So not medication, but gradual exercise. And when we say exercise, it's really important for patients to know that we're not saying that someone who can hardly function in the home should start you know, running 5K or anything. Mm. Exercise is whatever is appropriate for that individual patient. So if they are struggling literally to walk to the end of the garden, then that would be your target is, is, okay, let's do it in stages and let's see if we can get you to walk to the end of the garden, you know, in, in a certain time frame. And the other patients will be doing park runs and they can cope with that and say, okay, let's see where we can increase from that. So it's, it's um, individualized to the patient, setting realistic targets um, and trying to progress appropriately for that person so exercise is key there are lots of other things that can help sleep hygiene is always addressed i think it's it's a difficult one because we all want to sleep well but it's not something that we have tremendous control over but whatever you can control that's very important so you know not drinking alcohol late at night or caffeine at night trying to relax down into sleep, a hot bath or hot shower before bed, all those simple things. And actually patients themselves develop their own little toolkit of what works for them and by thinking for themselves what works and, and comparing notes with, with other sufferers. So non-drug treatment is the most important thing. Some patients need more psychological support, particularly if, if depression um, is a major factor for them. And that is usually something like cognitive behavior therapy if there's more severe depression that might need to be to be addressed on its own terms with um, input from the gp um, and taken forward accordingly but the first step is 
non-pharmacological mm. and for most patients that is the treatment pacing and planning as well are, are central to fibromyalgia and that is really trying to marshal your energy levels and to uh, use them with great care and respect so on a day when a patient wakes up and feels gosh this is a really bad day they think about what they had planned that day and understand that they can't do everything they plan because it's a bad day, um, but they will do A and B, even if they can't do A, B, C and D. But on a good day as well, when a patient wakes up and thinks, oh, I feel great today, they don't run around making up for all the, the days that they haven't been able to do everything. They plan the day again and say, OK, I can do more than I could on my bad day, but I'm not going to overdo it and exhaust myself. And they plan what they do, what they're going to do then for the rest of the day. And by treating their energy levels with that kind of care, patients actually find they can do more and over time they can manage their lives better. I often have patients saying, but I don't want to give in. You know, I don't mm. want, I've got to get through it. And it's not giving in, it's accepting that you do have fibromyalgia, you know, giving yourself a little love and, a, and permission to say, I can't do what everybody else can do and on a bad day I can't do what I can do on a good day um, and I'm going to work with that and working with the condition people do much better they start to be able to take control they start to be able to manage their lives very important too to tell the people around you and if you possibly can the people at work as well that this is the condition you have and how it's going to impact and ask for understanding and ask for help. Mm. So there's all of that as the main input. As far as drugs are concerned, the major breakthrough um, over the last sort of 10 to 20 years was really understanding what didn't work. So what didn't work were the standard painkillers, things like paracetamol, ibuprofen, codeine. Some patients would even be on morphine. And in right. the past, Patients would come to clinic on all of those drugs, um, really loaded up with drugs, which we now understand because this is not a problem of muscles and joints, but a problem of central sensitization. We now understand that you wouldn't expect those medications to work and they don't tend to work in fibromyalgia. Mm. So painkillers are not helpful. We then turn to drugs which do work on the nerves and the brain. So um, some antidepressants, some anti-epileptic drugs and one pain reliever that had a double way of working that um, could sometimes help. So the, the first drug we tend to use is a drug called amitriptyline, which is an old antidepressant, um, and we use it at very low doses, not at doses used for depression. And that can help with sleep and with pain, and that has remained our main drug. It can make people very sleepy the next day, even when it's at very low dose. Fibromyalgia patients, because of that sensitization that they have, often have lots of, lots of difficulty tolerating medication. So they do have more side effects than people who don't have fibromyalgia. So it can be hard to tolerate a drug which already has a lot of side effects. But amitriptyline is worth trying for patients who have poor sleep and a lot of pain, and it can help to some extent. The other drugs have generally been quite disappointing, unfortunately, in that they tend to have 
a lot of side effects and usually only a little benefit. So you, you're often paying quite a high price in side effects for not very much improvement in the fibromyalgia. Um, so we've tended to move away and the most recent guidelines have suggested focusing on non-drug treatment and keeping the medications. And they're only that, that small um, handful that really can be used for fibromyalgia and keep those for particular patients with particular problems. So duloxetine, for instance, is an, is an antidepressant used for depression. And so if you have a patient with fibromyalgia who has depression as part of the problem, duloxetine might be a good idea to try for them. Mm. So the drugs um, we've moved away from, this is not a condition at the moment, again, because the biology is still poorly understood, where we have good, effective treatments with few side effects. So it's, you know, drugs are not the answer for most, uh, they can help a bit for some patients, but for all patients, exercise, pacing, planning, sleep hygiene, um, and psychological support for a chronic debilitating condition is the main treatment. Mm. Well, I mean, hopefully anyone listening to this who might still be using some of those older painkiller approaches might now start to understand why those aren't working very well. And, and I know when we say old drugs, like we said about amitriptyline, we mean these are well-established. Yes, yes. it's been years. around for a very long time. Yeah. And it was, it was used you know, whenever, I think, 70s and 80s for depression. And over the years, it's been understood that at very low dose, it has a different benefit for sleep and chronic pain. Mm. So it's been repurposed. Oh, I was going to say, and, you know, we understand the use of it better because it's not so new. So it's it's uh, yes. well-established. And, I mean, it is our aim. We're, ho we're hoping to put a podcast into this series that focuses more on therapies with one of the therapists from the RNHRD. So I think that will be really useful for people to listen to as well. Um, hugely, hugely useful. They are really the experts, I think, in, in the, they are the ones who deliver the best um, treatment that we have to date with the exercise and the education and all the rest of it. So that, that would be really helpful now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to Dr. Maddie Piper, who has been sharing a lot of information with us. And there's more. We've actually split her information out into two episodes. So please make sure you do come back for episode two, where we'll continue the discussion with a focus on well-being and mental health issues that can often affect people with fibromyalgia. BIRD are committed to helping patients increase knowledge about rheumatic conditions because we know this can have a really positive impact on living with them. We also have a great focus on enabling people to get involved in rheumatology research to help make sure that new medications and treatments meet the needs of patients. We couldn't do any of this without the help of our volunteers and the support of our donors and sponsors, all of whom we are immensely grateful to. You can sign up to be notified about all our podcasts and our patient engagement research opportunities by joining our mailing list. Just send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. The address and links are in the show notes.